say. <clears throat> we'll be reading Nahum chapter 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous <clears throat> and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble, he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace... Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, far too often, as we've talked about on Wednesdays and as we'll talk about again here this morning, we speak of things we know nothing about. Far too often we assume who you are, what you're like, and in our assumptions, God, we miss you. I pray that this morning, Father, that we would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, be drawn into your presence and that we would see you for who you are. And God, we see through a glass darkly right now. But one day, every single one of us will see you face to face. And the question that we ask this morning is, will we see you as our father or as our foe? Because those who come into your presence as your foe, God, will be completely destroyed. And those who come and call you father will be welcomed into your presence to worship you and serve you forever. Help us to know the side that we are on and what you have done to bring us there. Help us understand this word we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We have got a lot of ground to cover this morning, and of course we'll start in verse 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. So the book starts with the author being identified. This is kind of the title page, if you would. Uh, And he actually even gives us the type of writing. 
He identifies that. So we'll start with the author. Verse 1 says that this is the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. We'll take that in really well because that's literally all the Bible says about him. Um, There's nothing else about him in the rest of the Bible. This one little sentence gives us all we know. He doesn't appear anywhere else. There's no background later in the book. Nothing. Now there is a Nahum mentioned in a genealogy in Luke 3 but we don't know if it's the same person or not. So we're not going to count that. Um, Nahum, his name means comforter. We can decipher that from the original language. Again, the text doesn't tell us that. We're just looking at what the word means in the original language. And he's from a place called Elkosh. Well, nothing's known about Elkosh either. They can't identify it and say it was right here or right here. Um, what, What we know is that Nahum was from there. That's basically what we know about Elkosh. Uh, hard to tell exactly where it was, but we can infer, and sometimes we do have to infer things that the Bible doesn't speak directly to. We can infer that this town must have been in the southern kingdom of Judah. If you remember last week, we talked about the united monarchy of Israel, and then after Solomon, it split into two nations the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Well, Elkosh had to be in the southern kingdom of Judah since we placed the date of the book in our introduction last week around the mid-600s B.C. Um, If we can... Oh, my heavens. Now, y'all, I don't know if y'all are ready for this. I don't know if I'm ready for this, okay? Let me do this. So if you look down here... (laughs) Oh, my heavens. Um, Anyway, Nahum, there you see, is sort of in the 650 to 600 range here. So since that's true, okay, what, what's important to know is, so the northern kingdom of Israel would have been besieged and taken by the Assyrians, get used to that word and that name, around 722 B.C. So if we're dating his prophecy in the mid-600s B.C., this was after the northern kingdom had been destroyed. So he wouldn't be coming from the northern kingdom of Israel prophesy, he would have been prophesying from the southern kingdom. And since the northern kingdom had been destroyed, Elkosh must have been in that southern kingdom of Judah. <clears throat> so that's just a little inference there. Um, so a guy named Nahum had a vision, and he writes it down in a book. Okay, We see in verse 1 that, there, that this is an oracle, a book, and a vision. Of course, the word book means that it was a written account. An account of what? It's an account of a vision that this man Nahum had. And the word vision conveys the thought of God sharing something with someone that he wants them to communicate to others. Daniel speaks of having visions upon his bed. And the word vision is used in many other Old Testament books, including Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Obadiah, Micah, and Habakkuk, which are all what? Prophets, okay? So it's a very prophety word. It's a supernatural disclosing of the words and the will of God to a person. Sometimes to tell of things that will come to pass in the future, sometimes just into the very heart and mind of God in the moment. So this vision is called an oracle, and it's concerning Nineveh. Now the word oracle is translated as burden in a lot of versions of the Bible. And a burden infers weight, right? It's a heavy word being conveyed 
by God to his prophet. And I promise you, those prophets wanted to discharge the burden. They wanted to take what was given to them, which was weighing heavy upon them, and communicate it to others so that that burden, that oracle, would be discharged and taken off of them and shared with everybody. Okay, So it's a heavy word being conveyed by God to his people through his prophet. And Nahum, this comforter, feels the weight of these words, and these words concern Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, We talked about that last week, and if you look up there, I don't have to point. Who am I kidding? Look at that. I can circle that joker. Right there's Nineveh. Um, And that's the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. So Nahum's writing from somewhere down here in the southern kingdom of Judah. You see Jerusalem there. You see the Dead Sea, all that kind of stuff. So Assyria is this giant, monstrous empire that's just running roughshod over the world and conquering every land they come up against. And they've already come down here and they've taken the northern kingdom. And the threat is always that they'll come down here and take the southern kingdom as well. Okay? But Nahum has a vision concerning Nineveh. So remember, we're going to see all through this, these three chapters that there are words directly to Nineveh and there are words to Judah. And deciphering who God is talking to and about is going to be really important. And this is the same Nineveh that Jonah had preached to, and that was a hundred plus years before this. Okay, so just kind of set the timeline. At the time of Jonah's preaching, the Ninevites had repented, fearing the message that Jonah brought, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And they repented in dust and ashes from the greatest of the kings, even down to the animals. They put sackcloth on the animals and they all sat in ashes and repented over their sins. Well, it's apparent here that that repentance didn't last very long. Maybe not past the ears that heard it. And we'll see later that this iteration of Ninevites are not following the footsteps of those that Jonah saw turn away from their sins and turn to the God, the only God. And so Nahum hears from God about these Ninevites and is sharing that revelation with both Nineveh. I would guess he wrote it down and sent it to them. Hey, it's coming, y'all. And as we'll see, he's communicating with Judah as well. So what's going on then? Now, before we get there, God has something else for us to see. Not just words about Nineveh. God's got some words about himself. Who he is. What he's like. And we see that in verses 2 and 3. I've got one, 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 one. Okay, all the rest. No, there is. I just had it repeated many times. The Lord, the prophecy starts, is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. I've got multiple. Yeah, okay. We'll just leave that there. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Now, what if that was the business card you handed out to everybody? Hey, y'all. I'm Jason. I'm jealous and avenging. Nice to meet you. 
So yeah, Nahum has a word from God about Nineveh, but that word is also about God himself. Nineveh needs to know who God is in order for them to know where they stand with him. And this first glimpse into the person of God is shocking. The Lord, that's the word Yahweh, the great I am, the covenant God of Israel, the creator God who spoke the universe into existence, and that God, that Lord is what? A jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Huh. Okay then. Well, that's a little bit, I don't know, maybe not your average description of God. Right? Is this how you would describe God? We hear hear and we use the words holy. That's a good one. He's good. He's powerful. He's great. He's merciful. Gracious. And those are all right. They're all true. But how often do you lead with jealous, avenging, and wrathful when you talk about God? Would you ever? Well, God does here. Is that odd to you? Well, it kind of sets the tone for this whole book. It's a book about God taking vengeance on his enemies. And in setting that tone, God is clear that he has fire and he has passion to work against his enemies in the same way he's passionate to work on behalf of his people. You do not want to be on the list of those that God calls his enemies or his adversaries. Let's look at these descriptive words a little closer. First, he's jealous. Now, what does the word jealous mean? Well, turns out this Hebrew word means jealous. But but don't think jilted lover here, okay? Don't think of someone who wishes they had something that someone else had. I'm jealous of your house, your car, your hair, whatever. I'm not, by the way. (laughs) The main thought in this jealousy is fiercely protective and unaccepting of disloyalty. And to partner with that, he's also avenging. One who is fiercely protective would, quite naturally it seems, be avenging too. Ladies... Would you want your husband to be jealous and avenging if someone harmed you? I hope you would. I hope you wouldn't want him to go, oh, it's okay. It's all right. That's just my wife. One who is fiercely protective. And he's avenging. And that simply means he takes action to punish the wrongs of those who have harmed or threatened those he loves. He's going to make them pay for the wrongs that they've done. Do you want a God that's not going to make people pay for the wrongs they've done? We'll talk more about that later. 
Here, in this book, it's obvious that he's referring, God is, to the Ninevites. They have caused God's people harm and pain. They've obliterated the northern kingdom of Israel. And they've puffed themselves up as superior to the southern kingdom of Judah. They're big bullies. And God's going to make them pay for their wrongs because God is wrathful. That word is literally fury ruler. And the word for ruler could be translated as man, man, owner, or husband. Yeah, boy. So many times in the Old Testament, we see the analogy of God calling Israel his bride. We see it in the New Testament of the church. And of course, if you harm a man's bride, like I just said, you should expect to face his wrath. Listen to the coward of the county. Gatlin boys, there was three of them. Old Yella took care of them. Because that's what you do when somebody messes with your woman. Now if this man, this fury ruler, this fury man is God, how terrible do you think his wrath would be? Omnipotent wrath. So Nineveh, meet the jealous, avenging, wrathful husband of the people that you're persecuting. He says, hello, my name is Jealous avenging, and wrathful. And remember, this is how God is leading into this vision that Nahum is relaying. This is who I am, he says. He takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. And while it's true that he is slow to anger, as evidenced by his calls to Nineveh to repent in the past, he's still great in power and will by no means clear the guilty. He's not just flying off the handle like somebody throwing a hissy fit or somebody who just can't control their temper. His temper is not lost. He waits, calling to repentance. He waits, looking for a change. And when that change does not come, he calls the guilty to account. And guilt means that you have done a wrong that requires some sort of payment or recompense as a result. You commit the crime, you do the time, so to speak. And if you are found guilty of wronging or harming God or His people, which you can't harm God, but if you're found guilty of wronging or harming God or His people, your payment is going to be steep indeed. It's not going to be a slap on the wrist. He will by no means, by no means clear the guilty. It might take some time, but as John MacArthur said, don't ever confuse patience with impotence. He's slow to anger, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Keep that in mind. And what does that payback look like? Well, it goes on to say that his way is in the whirlwind and storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. Think aftermath of a tornado. Whirlwind, storm, clouds. By the way, here's just some useless information for you. Tornadoes are rated using what is called the enhanced Fujita scale. Zero, rating for 65 to 85 mile an hour winds. Rating of 1 for 86 to 100 mile per hour winds. Rating of 2 for 111 to 135 mile per hour winds. Rating of 3 for 136 to 165. Rating of 4 for 166 to 200. And a rating of 5 for 200 plus miles per hour winds. 
So imagine a God whirlwind blowing through, I'd say it's 200 plus miles an hour. That's the kind of wrath we're talking about here. An enhanced Fujita Category 5 tornado is said to be able to take a strong frame house, remove it from its foundation, and sweep it away. Think that and more when you think of this way of God as a whirlwind and a storm with the clouds as the dust of his feet. Not just destruction, complete, utter devastation. That's who this God is, and that's what his wrath is like. Verses 4 and 5. Elaborate a little bit more. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Now... Think as bad as you can think and and, and go on. And keep in mind, we're seeing a vision that Nahum had of God. And God is furious at Nineveh, which is the representation of the Assyrian Empire. The mightiest kingdom on the face of the earth. He's going to pour out his wrath in this vision like an unimagined tornado. And here we see that his powers go beyond just a tornado, he speaks to the seas and the rivers and they dry up. Now the Israelites are going, hey, wait a second. We've heard stories about that. The Red Sea, the Jordan River. When our ancestors came out of Egypt in the Exodus, the Red Sea parted and they walked through on dry ground. The Jordan River piled up miles up the river and we walked across it on dry ground. But that's a long time ago. But these Assyrians may have heard of that. They may not have. They had no frame of reference for that. But imagine a being, capital B being, that could tell the seas and the rivers to dry up. Nineveh had been protected all these years of their domination of others by the Tigris River, the Great River. And that was a natural barrier to potential invaders. But God, who created the Tigris is not hindered at all by it. He can speak and make the whole river dry up. Hey, river, dry up. You figure that might be a little unnerving to think that that was the God that was coming for you? Bashan and Carmel are symbols in Judah of lush, rich, fertile ground. Bashan was famous for its verdant pasture lands. Carmel was the backbone of the food supplies of Israel, producing produce from its vast and productive grain fields. Lebanon was known for its forests of cedars and bounty of produce. At God's command, they wither. He's the master of all nature. Even the mountains, mighty and strong, quake before Him. The hills melt. The hills melt. This is weird. This is power beyond anything we could think or imagine. The earth, the whole earth, heaves before him. 
There is no natural feature, no landmark, no structure of wood or stone, nothing on the planet or the planet itself actually that can stand before the God of the universe. The world, and note this, all who dwell in it, heave before This is a different God than I pray to most mornings. Same God, a side of Him that I'm not real comfortable with. And that's good. All who dwell in it, in the whole world. Assyria had become drunk on their own power, their own kingdom, their fortresses, their natural boundaries, their own abilities. And God is saying, you, like the land that you inhabit will heave before me. Verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. So Nahum asks two rhetorical questions next. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? And the unnecessary answer is surely no one. Not Assyria, not their capital of Nineveh, nor their armies or their mighty men or their king. If the mountains are melting, so will these tiny, finite men, all of them, all of us, if God is indignant toward us. The heat of his anger will incinerate any and everyone that feels it. His wrath is poured out like fire. You ever been around a raging fire? You don't play with fire. And our God is a consuming fire. God's wrath is poured out like an inferno that can't be contained. And, Nahum says, the rocks are broken into pieces by him. This is another descriptive statement of the power of God destroying that which is thought to be stable or unbreakable. God breaks the rocks into pieces. He does that. Nothing can stop his wrath from totally decimating those whom he has determined to be his enemies. It's quite a few verses. God is shown to be a completely untamable tornado raining destruction on those who have crossed his bride. What about that bride? What's her lot? Verse 7. Throw the card in reverse. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. It's kind of a let's look at the other side of the coin moment. Both sides are true. They are not contradictory. Nahum's vision takes a glance at those protected by God. To them, the Lord is good. One of our three questions last week was, is God good? Yes, yes he is. Now that feels better to us, doesn't it? (laughs) Is God good? Yeah, yeah, he's good. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. And that's true. He is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. While he's raining down wrath on his enemies, he's an impregnable stronghold in the day of trouble for those he is protecting. He knows those who take refuge in him. While he ravages those whose strength and confidence are in their own defenses, God himself is a stronghold And his people take their refuge in him. 
can't help but think of Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Proverbs 18, 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. He himself is the strong tower that his people hide in. And unlike the natural means of safety, chariots, horses, castles, rocks, rivers, or the like, God himself is a refuge that no natural man or spiritual devil can ever ever penetrate. While he's pouring out his wrath in full vent, he welcomes those who will to find their peace and security in him. He knows them. And that implies intimate knowledge. And he keeps them safe and sound in the dwelling place of his very being. Ah, we love verse 7. Verse 8. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. So sticking with the nature motif, we return now to the wrath and destruction that God is pronouncing on Nineveh. He's a safe dwelling place for those who trust and know him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. Some of you guys went down and saw destructions of floods, right? Water ten feet tall. It don't stop for nothing. Utter destruction. Ruination. With an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. Just tornadoes, fires, floods, rocks breaking apart, mountains melting, shaking, people heaving. While this could be an allusion to an army, a flood, breaking through like a flood into the city after an attack on it, it's quite literally what happened when Nineveh was laid waste, which happens in 612 B.C., Historians record that during the siege of Nineveh, it rained so hard that there was a flood that broke part of the once thought impenetrable walls of Nineveh, giving access to invaders that they had never had before. And this flood and this access into the city led to a complete end of those adversaries of God, who is said here, he says, to pursue them, his enemies, into darkness. I would assume this means the darkness of death, since he says he would make a complete end of them. Not the darkness of hiding from the wrath in a cave somewhere, but the darkness of death with his wrath being poured out. And we see this thought reiterated and further explained in verse 9. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. In the midst of pouring out his wrath, God addresses them directly, asking them, what do you plot against the Lord? It's more of a challenge than something to be answered. More like, whatever you may plot will be to no avail. For, he says, he will make a complete end, echoing that last verse, and then adding, trouble will not rise up a second time. There's no recovery. There's no build Nineveh back better or make Nineveh great again here. A complete end where trouble for God's people will not rise up for a second time. Period. There will be no threat from Nineveh for the chosen of God ever again. Oh, let that sink in. Their future end is as certain as their past provocations and their present pride. Plot what you will. You will be completely foiled and destroyed. Verse 10. 
For they, are like, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. Now this verse is the hardest verse in this chapter to, to decipher. It's kind of, there's a lot of uncertainty in the exact meaning of this verse. They wonder if there's an idiom in here that was familiar to them. Because if you look, some commentators just gloss over it. They don't even really address it. While others say this is really hard to figure out and decipher. There are three pictures of the Ninevites here. They're like entangled thorns. They're like drunkards as they drink, and they're consumed like stubble fully dried. And the beginning of the verse is four, which is seemingly given reason either why or how God is going to make that complete end of them, as he mentioned in verse 9. Now I can associate thorns and stubble, that's plant analogies, right? But in between those two, he's talking about drunk people. (laughs) Thorns, drunkards, and stubble. It seems to me that he will make a complete end of them for They're like thorns and drunkards, persistent annoyances that don't just go away. They cause pain. They aggravate you whenever they're encountered. And then their destruction is like them being consumed like stubble fully dried. Either way, the point is the Ninevites are provoking God and his people, and he's going to burn them up like dry stubble. Verse 11. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Now, this is my favorite part of this. So keep in mind that Nahum is prophesying in the context of the nation of Judah about Nineveh's destruction. Here, God says that from Nineveh came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Now, is he saying that there was one particular Ninevite that that had a plan to do evil against the Lord and or his people? Maybe That very well could have been Sennacherib, who was the king when Assyria had overtook the northern kingdom of Israel back in 722 B.C. After destroying Israel, Assyrian forces then marched into Judah, who would seemingly be next in the long line of conquered lands of the Assyrian war machine. Little Judah, tribe and a half, stood no chance, and everybody knew that. But if you're current your reading, uh, your Bible reading plan, we read Isaiah 36. This week, watch this. This happened right after Assyria destroyed Israel and was coming into Judah. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib king of Assyria came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh, which is my favorite word in the Bible, Rabshakeh, from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him... Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh, he just sounds like a bad guy, Rabshakeh, right? And he says to them, say to Hezekiah, your king, thus says the great king. And he's referring to Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you've rebelled against me? The king of Assyria says, Behold, you're trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. Watch this. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses. If you're able, on your part, to set riders on them. He is just, it's head games here. He's talking trash. 
How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I've come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Now, he may not be wrong there. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall, watch this, who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? People on the wall are like, Ooh. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. And he's saying Yahweh here. Don't let him make you trust in the Lord, saying the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Don't trust that. Don't listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria. Make your peace with me. Come out to me. Then each one of you will eat his own vine and each one of his own fig tree. And each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land. A land of grain and wine. A land of bread and vineyards. Beware, the Rabshakeh says, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord, that Yahweh will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? That's the northern kingdom, which they had not. Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? That's bold and foolish. Is this the counselor that God's referring to in Nahum? I don't know that for sure. But doggone. And we'll look at this exchange again later in the book of Nahum, but I couldn't not bring it up here. If this isn't the one God's referring to in verse 11 of Nahum 1, who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor, again, I'm not 100% positive, but this sure is a great candidate, representative of it at least. Look at the arrogance, the disdain for Judah and her God. And we know that God does not take well to arrogance, does he? And the Rabshakeh is, if anything, arrogant. And why wouldn't he be? This is mighty Assyria. Rolling along like a well-oiled machine, taking nation after nation. And now they stand at the door of a beaten, battered Judah who had no hope except for their God. Ha, they say. Your God is nothing compared to us. Your God's just another like all the other gods of the nations that we've destroyed. We're mighty. God sees it and says this in verses 12 to 13. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, my people, Judah, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. So God says, yeah, I see them at full capacity, running wild with their many troops. And then he assures both Assyria and Judah that while that may be true, they will be cut down and pass away. By the way, that Assyrian invasion of Judah didn't go so well for them. 
back when the Rabshakeh came. Look at how it ended, Isaiah 37, 36 and 37. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived in Nineveh, where his own sons killed him in the temple of his gods, by the way. So how'd that turn out for the Rabshakeh? How'd that turn out for Sennacherib? God's saying, it's all right. I've got this. And again, this was not the end that God was speaking of in Nahum, but it's a good precursor. Just like God had mowed down 185,000 Assyrians overnight, Nineveh and the whole Assyrian Empire would come to an abrupt end. Even at full strength, they are nothing compared to the omnipotent God. He will cut them down and they will pass away. God then turns His word to His people and assures them that any affliction from Him for their sins will end and any yoke or burden from any outside oppressor will be removed. He will deliver His people and they will be free, having their bonds burst apart. It's a forceful and complete deliverance and God will accomplish it for His people even against what may have been perceived as the mightiest of foes. And now, verse 14, God turns his attention back toward Nineveh. One last time in this chapter. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. This is God talking. That's some pretty gritty talk there, isn't it? And where's it coming from? The Lord, Yahweh, has given commandment about you, Nineveh. God himself is issuing commands regarding Nineveh. And note that it's a commandment. Not a suggestion, not a possibility, but a direct command from the Lord of everything. The great I am. And what commandment has he given? The commandment is this. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. So there are two directions on this commandment. First, toward Nineveh itself, and then toward Nineveh's gods, little g gods. First, toward Nineveh itself, God says, No more shall your name be perpetuated. And there at the end, I will make your grave, for you are vile. He's making sure that they know that not only will they lose their place of power in the world, but they will lose literally any place in the world they may have occupied. They're going to lose their lives. To say that their name would no longer be perpetuated means that there would be no survivors to propagate descendants. The Assyrian race itself would be basically exterminated. I will make your grave, God says, which implies obviously death, the end. No more life. Why? For you are vile. God sees the Ninevites as vile, which means morally bad or wicked. It carries the thought of having little worth or value. These Ninevites are of no value to God and his plan outside of receiving his wrath. They have set themselves up against God and God's people, and as such, the part that they play in the plan of God is to be eliminated. Nothing 
that rises up against God will stand. Ever. God will bring down all that is against him. And these Ninevites fit that description. They are vile and they will, brought, they will be brought to their final grave. But not just them, they're gods too. He says, from the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the meadow image. Assyria had a pantheon of gods. They had a god for everything, like so many societies at that time. Their primary god was called Asher, A-S-H-U-R. And their primary goddess was Ishtar. Both were deities of many aspects, but also both were deities of war and battle. Of course they were. The Assyrians were a culture steeped in war. And the God of heaven and earth says that he's going into their house and cutting them off in their carved and metal images. They weren't truly gods. They were made up in the minds of people and crafted by the hands of people. And Yahweh says that their time is as fake as the metal and the wood that they're made of and that their time as these fake gods was over. He's ending Assyria and its fake gods. And all of this, the jealousy, the wrath, the vengeance, the destruction, the annihilation, all of it is good news. All of it's good news. The death, the destruction, the annihilation, the tornado, the flood, the fire, the mountains melting, the rocks being broken in pieces, that's all really good news. You're like, it doesn't feel like good news. I don't care what it feels like. We are so up in our feelings anymore. I'm all about feelings. I'm a mental health counselor, okay? Mental and emotional health. I'm all about it. But what we feel cannot trump the truth. Ever! And this doesn't feel nice to us. but it's good news. He's going to kill them all. And that's good news. I don't know, man. Do you hesitate at that? Nahum doesn't. Look at our last verse. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Now I won't go there. Nahum, whose name means comforter, brings good news and peace and calls on Judah to celebrate with faithfulness. Behold! Stop! Look! Focus! Ponder on this, Nahum says. The message of Nineveh's destruction is like seeing a messenger on the mountain paths running to the town with good news for the people. Woohoo! Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. God's word resounds like a joyous echo. Your enemy, your oppressor is to be eliminated and harass you no longer. That specter of fear and dread is gone. God is removing the threat forever. Good news indeed. Peace indeed. So with the dread of enemy attacks removed, now, Judah, keep your feasts. I love that that's the first thing he says. What's a feast? It's good stuff. It's a party. We're going to sit out and we're going to eat 
and probably eat too much and say, man, that was good. Ain't things good? Because there's peace. That threat is gone. Celebrate your relationship with your conquering God by feasting and rejoicing. Keep your feasts and fulfill your vows. Do what you said you would do to honor your God. God, if you get me out of this, I promise I'll never do this again. Remember that. If you get rid of Assyria, God, I'll serve you forever. All right. They're gone. Fulfill your vows. Keep your feasts. Fulfill your vows. Do what you said you would do in order to honor your God. No need to wish you had freedom to worship God properly. That freedom's granted now. For never again shall the worthless, these pagan Assyrians, pass through you. Nineveh, Assyria, is utterly cut off. It's good news that the enemy is utterly cut off. You guys that have been in combat, you ever get that news? The enemy's completely cut off. Good. That was a battle. They're utterly cut off. Assyria will never be a threat to Judah again. Assyria will never be a threat to Judah again. We'll see what that cutting off looks like next week. But for now, we turn our attention to application from this first chapter. We'll look at application through three A's. Everybody's a part of AAA this morning. Attributes, adversaries, and adoration. Those are hard words. I mean, it's not like A, B, C. Attributes, adversaries, and adoration. It's really kind of the outline of the whole chapter, truthfully. First, in in way of application, attributes. We should know, understand as much as humanly possible, aided by the Holy Spirit. Know, understand, and embrace every attribute of God. We saw today, He's jealous, He's avenging, He's wrathful, and He's good. I'll take the good and leave the other three if that's okay. No, it's not okay. Steve talked about it this morning. Are there descriptions of God here and in other places in the Bible that you're not comfortable with? If there's not, you ain't reading enough. You ain't reading right. God came and slayed, slew, slew, killed 185,000 men in one night. I got no context for that. He wiped an entire people group from the face of the earth. And he boasted in his ability to do it. And told him ahead of time that he was going to do it. It's kind of like Muhammad Ali saying, I'm going to punch you right here, get ready. And then doing it. You comfortable with that? Are there things that God does or is said to do here that, that, that comfort you? 
Because this is meant to be comforting. Nahum is the comforter. I said it before, Steve said it. You do not want a God who's not jealous, avenging, and wrathful. You don't. Because that God, a God that's not jealous, avenging, and wrathful, would wink and smile at sin. A non-jealous, avenging, and wrathful God would not care about injustice. That God would not punish evil. And you don't want that. I don't want that. If I say the name Adolf Hitler, you kind of want him to get his, don't you? Oversaw the killing of millions of people. Jews and others, not just Jews, but primarily Jews. You want him to get his. How many of you heard about Jeffrey Dahmer on death row finding religion? That man killed and ate people. We don't want to hear that he got saved. We want him to get his. Careful. Also, in thinking about the attributes of God, be careful that you don't create a God in your own image instead of seeing and worshiping the true God that the Bible reveals to us in all of his glory and all of his attributes. Which leads me, as far as application goes, to ask this question. Are you too familiar with the God that you think you know? Jesus is my homeboy. That was a thing back in the early 2000s. Listen, he calls us friend. But doggone, if you get too comfortable with him, you're going to miss this stuff. And people are going to say, you're like, no, that's not my Jesus. Uh, Yes, it is. He's bigger, he's greater, he's mightier, and he is different than you may think that he is. Which drives us to the scriptures so that we can see who he is. Read what we see here today, jealous, avenging, and wrathful, and go, God, please help me to understand who you are as a result of what I'm seeing here. Let me not accuse you. You shouldn't be that way, God. May it never be. God, how do I reconcile this in the truth that you are good? Make me uncomfortable that I might know you more, God. You, I, we should invest our lives into knowing him more and better. We mentioned last week that Hebrews tells us that in these last days that God has spoken through his son. You want to see the attributes of God? Look at Jesus. He is the embodiment of God, God in the flesh. And watch this, Colossians tells us, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He's before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He may be preeminent. For in Him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And watch this. Oh, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. 
You want to talk about something that don't make a lick of sense. Look at this table. God comes down in the form of a man and shows his hatred for sin by slaying his own son, himself. He makes peace by the blood of the cross of Christ. He shows us his hatred for sin as he crushes his own son. I might not have done it that way if I was God. But we see here the jealous wrath and the vengeance of God against those things that might keep his people from him. Our sins. Through the blood of the cross of Christ, we see God's love, God's holiness, God's grace, God's goodness, God's wrath, God's vengeance, God's jealousy, and so much more. Oh, look to Christ. Look to the cross and see these attributes and so much more. Attributes. Second is adversaries. Oh, my word. God himself has said and has shown that he is making an end of all of the adversaries of his people. We see that in Nahum with the Assyrians, the Ninevites, and the fact that God takes care of the adversaries of his people is really, really good news. Obviously, the adversaries today are the Ninevites. Anybody had any problem with Ninevites recently? Ninevites breaking in your house, stealing your weed eater, siphoning your gas, letting your dog out. Pesky Ninevites. Man, they get on my nerves. <laughs> Me neither. Mine are Hellenites now. I don't have any problem with them. You don't have any problem with Ninevites because there ain't none no more. But we do have adversaries, Right? We fight a daily fight with the world, the flesh, and the devil as Christians. And while those enemies have not been eradicated at this point, they have been defeated. They have been subjugated. And one day, on that last day, they will be completely eradicated. But until then, how do we fight them? First, we fight them from victory. God has beaten every adversary that we have. Has beaten through the blood of His cross, through the resurrection, through the ascension glorification of Jesus Christ who sits at the right hand of God and directs the universe and upholds the universe by the word of His power. You're not fighting for victory, Christian. You're fighting from victory. That's super important. Sit, walk, stand. Ask me about that later. So we fight from victory in the power and the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus told us to take heart because He had overcome the world. Paul says in Galatians that the life he lived in the flesh, he lived by faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him. And Jesus said that the ruler of this world had been judged, which is the devil. The world, the flesh, they've all been judged. They've all been beaten. They've all been taken care of. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Christian, your adversaries have been overcome. And one day they will be completely eradicated. Know that and live in the knowledge of it. Attributes, adversaries, and finally, adoration. How do we respond to this God 
How do we respond to these things that we may not be comfortable with? How do we respond to a God who is vengeful and wrathful and jealous? We adore Him. We adore Him for all of His attributes. Adore Him for the victory that He has granted over our adversaries. Worship Him. Keep your feasts. Fulfill your vows. Oh, come, let us adore Him. All of heaven and earth will one day adore Him. We finish with this. Revelation 15, 2-4. Now watch this progression. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Let me tell you what, when it all shakes out at the end, this is the song that's being sung. There's another one that's being poured out and sung as the wrath of God is being poured out. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Uh Uh-oh, this is dark, this is bleak. So the first angel went and poured out his bow on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bow into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. Then the third angel poured out his bow into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Man, God is mean. Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. That's the way you respond to God's judgments if you're his people. That's the way you respond to the wrath of God being poured out. You praise him. You adore him. You worship him. You do not accuse him. And listen, every single one of us from Adam to the last day of creation were born his adversaries. And we deserve the wrath of God. Every single one of us. But God, in His mercy, because of the great love with which He has loved us, invites us into His presence and says, I will slay my son instead of you. I will pour my wrath out on him instead of you. I will not give you what you deserve. I will give you grace. I will give you that which you do not deserve. And the offer stands today. Do you choose the wrath of God? Please don't. Do you choose the grace of God? A God whose every attribute leads to his glory. A God who has conquered our adversaries. A God who demands and deserves our adoration.
What will you do today with this jealous, vengeful, wrathful, beautiful, holy, good God? Let's pray. Father, you have done great things. As for this God, his way is perfect. Father, convict us of our sins. Show us the grace and mercy that flow from the blood of the cross of Christ. And may we worship you for your terrible wrath that was poured out upon your son for our sins. And may we say just and true, just and good are your judgments. Save us, God, from your wrath. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed, but... Stay and eat with us if you can.